we talk about financial health is as important as physical health and that access to high quality financial advice we think is as essential of a service as access to healthcare. Welcome everyone to the Ask a CEO show. Ask a CEO interviews bring us inside the corner office and C-suite for discussions with top executives about their journey to leadership and the reality of running their companies today. Our host, Greg Demetrio, is the CEO of Lorraine Gregory Communications, an award-winning integrated marketing company. He is also the founder of gregscorneroffice.com, the home of the Ask a CEO interviews. Greg has been in the business for over 30 years. He is a resource to the media, an invited columnist and speaker on marketing and business topics. Over the years, Greg has talked to hundreds of CEOs and executives about what it took to make it to the corner office and what it is really like being the leader of their companies. And now he brings those conversations to you. Here's Greg now. Welcome everyone to Ask a CEO. I'm Greg Demetrio, your host. I'm, my day job is CEO of Lorraine Gregory Communications, which is an integrated marketing company here in New York. Uh, my fun job is being the host of this show, which chronicles the journey of CEOs uh, to the corner office and what it's like running their companies on a day-to-day -day basis. Today's guest is Anders Jones, and he's the CEO and co-founder of Facet Wealth, which is a registered investment advisor company. He's a technical entrepreneur. He's an early stage investor and board member with experience building and scaling companies. His current focus is changing the way that high quality financial advice is delivered to the mass affluent market as the CEO of Facet Wealth. At Facet, he's overseen all aspects of the company's growth from the initial product innovation <clears throat> to service delivery on a national scale. Uh, from his work at Facet, Anders was named uh, Investment News 40 Under 40 in 2019. He's an early stage tech investor as a partner in Argyle Ventures. His investing is focused on technology enabled services in emerging tech hubs outside of Silicon Valley. In fact, he moved from San Francisco to Baltimore to start Facet and has grown the team to 100 plus headquartered there. He holds a BA from Stanford University and an MBA from the Wharton School. And welcome to the Ask a CEO show, Anders. Awesome. Thanks for, thanks for having me, Greg. Really appreciate oh, it. No, I really appreciate it. I love my job here. This is my fun job. I'm, I'm a CEO of a marketing company, but my fun job is talking to other CEOs. I always, awesome. get, I always learn something. Right. Always. I'm, I'm, yeah. Right. Yeah. You should, we should always be learning. Right. I think always. as, as a, as an early aside, I would say that that's probably been my biggest realization as a CEO is the importance of setting time aside to learn. And also that you can learn from uh, industries and pursuits and whatnot that have nothing to do with your job or your company. Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. So I'm really excited to talk to you today because you have a very interesting background with your tech investing, your startups, and growing companies. But before we get to that, maybe you could tell us a little bit about Anders Jones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess I begin at the beginning. So I, I grew up in Boston and um, stayed there for 18 years, went to college at Stanford, so moved to California, um, and you know was, in retrospect, lucky enough to graduate in 2009 which sounds like a, a weird statement to make, but 
when I graduated, 75% of my class didn't have a job, which coming out of a place like Stanford is pretty extraordinary. It gives you a sense of just how bad things were that year. Arguably, uh, you know, just as bad, if not worse than graduating this last year in 2020. Um, but, you know, being in Silicon Valley and, and sort of being in the, the middle of all of the, the startup uh, zeitgeist, I guess, um, I was, I joined the early team of a company that ended up becoming uh, LiveRamp. So I was the eighth employee there. LiveRamp uh, is an advertising technology company. Um, this is a, a big oversimplification of what we did, but if you've ever been shopping online and if uh, the thing that you've been looking at for the last, uh, or the, the thing you've been looking at follows you around for the next two weeks, yes. um, you know, we had a, we had a hand in that. So, uh, so sorry about that. So no, that's okay. I know it very well. We do the same. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Um, but um, so, so LiveRamp actually is now a public company. It's, uh, you know, I think a five or $6 billion market cap company. So, it was cool to be, to be um, part of that early journey and, you know, get a sense of what the startup life cycle really is all about. Because, uh, you know, as cliche as it is, it's not a straight line to success. There's a lot of ups and downs and fair amount of sideways as well. And I think after that experience, I realized that I wanted my whole career to be in the startup space and as, a, as an entrepreneur, not working for a big company and not, um, you know, in a in a sort of boring, you know, growing at the rate of the economy kind of kind of place. You know, that, that's funny that you should say that because in my mind, a startup is a heavy lift, right? You have to take it from idea to implementation. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that because it scares the crap out of me. I mean, I'm, I'm a 30 year company here and I'm very comfortable doing what we do, right? Yeah. For me to say, I'm going to start, have a startup next week. It's not even happening to me. So yeah. maybe you could tell us why you liked it so much and, and what it's really like to do that. Man, I mean, that's a big question. We could, we could spend the whole time talking about that. Um, Feel free. Yeah. You know, I think there's, there's a, a, a few things to consider. So, you know, one is startups by definition are trying to change the world in a meaningful way. And that can be anything from, changing the kind of cars that we drive to changing how we interact with the internet to, in our case, changing how financial planning is done and who it's done for. And I think in order to start a company, you have to have a very clear vision of what the future looks like. And you have to be relentless in, in getting there because this is one of those cases where, you know, there's that saying that the best way to, uh, predict the futures to create it. And so as soon as you sign up to do a startup, you have to, you have to kind of, you know, sign on for, for that level of fervor. Um, and, and it's definitely not for everyone, but I would say there's two stages to it. And, and this is again, a, a big generalization, but the, the first part is the sort of creation stage where you have an idea you think you see a problem, you think you understand the solution for it, and you think there's a big enough market for it. And oftentimes the first idea that you have doesn't work or it doesn't sort of fit into that box really neatly. Every now and then someone gets lucky and you got lightning in a bottle and companies like Facebook, I think, are a great example where they just, you know, sat down and they were the right place at the right time with the right product and off it went. But most startups, it doesn't happen like that. 
And then once you find product market fit, the second phase of the company begins, and that's where you have to scale it. And that's a whole different set of problems and challenges. The, the thing about scaling a company is you have, th those playbooks have been written and run before. And so you have a broader pool of people that you can hire from to come in and do those, do those tasks. It's not all about reinventing the wheel of actually scaling a business. Um, but you know, for each phase, they, they come with their own challenges. They come with their own sort of unique set of people that are good at them and um, you know, different levels of discomfort and, uh, and different levels of reward and opportunity. It's a, it's a thrilling ride. It is. I'm sure it is. It is it, it, you know, you've proven that already and now you're into, into investing in tech startups and so forth. But what caught my eye was the fact that you moved from San Francisco to Baltimore yeah. to not Facet Wealth. And I know you've been recognized as a top tech company, but maybe you could tell me what that move was all about. Yeah, so let me tie this back a little bit to my, my personal story. So after, so what happened with LiveRamp is we actually, it, it's, it was bought by this company, Axiom, big marketing services company. Um, and, and then subsequently got spun out as a public company. So after, and I left uh, just prior to the acquisition. And so, but after that happened, I was doing some early stage investing. So I, I wanted to try out the other side and, and uh, invest in, in early stage tech companies. And one of the, the big theses that we had was, uh, we were sitting in San Francisco at the time and we said, okay, there's, there's actually opportunity everywhere. There's innovation everywhere. There's talent everywhere. And as we get more interconnected online, there's less value in uh, being in San Francisco or being in New York or a major tech hub. There's actually comparatively more value at being in an emerging tech city where there's probably um, more attention and cheaper resources available to you without sacrificing on quality. So we started investing in, in companies outside of Silicon Valley in these emerging tech hubs. And one of the places that we did three deals was in Baltimore. Um, and so, so I got a sense of the tech scene in Baltimore and was really impressed with what was going on uh, at, at the time. This was mid-2015. And then when we started Facet, I said, okay, let's take a page out of our own playbook. And um, I moved to Baltimore, recruited the founding team said, let's make a bet that we can start a fintech company in Baltimore. So, uh, so that's what we did. And now we're 250 people. Um, we've, we're, we're not all in Baltimore. We're, uh, we're actually now sort of distributed around the country. We're in 42 different states. But the core of the team started and mostly remains in Baltimore. And um, it was a bet that really paid off. How did, how did COVID affect that? Well, Prior to COVID, we were actually virtual first. So we had, right, right before COVID hit, we were probably about 100 people. And I'd say 40 were in the Baltimore office and 60 were distributed. And so we'd already sort of developed a lot of the systems and processes that we needed to run a virtual company. Um, so we closed our office on a Thursday and Friday was business as usual. And, and we didn't really miss yeah. a beat. Yeah. Yeah. When, when COVID hit, I, I interviewed quite a few of my colleagues here in, in New York about COVID and what it was doing in their company. I have to tell you that they were all made that change. The ones who were, who were more comfortable, obviously, made that change quickly to mm -hmm. remote. 
and, and they were able to get the processes down fairly quickly, which gave them the confidence that they could ride the storm out. So the fact that you identified that and you were already virtual give you a head start. Um, <clears throat> talking about head starts, you're an investor in startup companies and early stage companies, right? Yeah. When you're looking at those companies in terms of a deal, what are the most important things that you're looking at uh, besides just management? Maybe you could give us a little thumbnail about what your thinking is when you're going to put the money on the table. Sure. So I think a, a couple things to start. First is that since we started Facet and, and I've been, you know, my, my number one job is CEO of Facet. So my investing pace has slowed way down. I still do a deal here and there. Um, but, uh, um, but, you know, not nearly at the, at the pace that, that I was. But I'm excited to get back to it at some point because I think having now run a company and sort of gotten through even more of the life cycle than I had previously, um, I, I know a lot more and I think it'll help. It, it definitely helps with, with the investing. But to your question, in the earliest stages, I think, honestly, the only two things that matter are the team and the TAM, uh, total addressable market. Um, because you don't, you don't know what the right answer is. A, a, a lot of, in a lot of ways, startups are about seeking truth and understanding what works and what doesn't. And you're really in a race against the clock to discover what the right answer is. And the only way to get there is to uh, iterate as fast as possible. There's this great saying that I'll, I'll steal from uh, Ben Horowitz, who wrote uh, an awesome book on entrepreneurship called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I don't know if you're nodding. Have you read it? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's a great book. But you know, he has this great line in there where he says, there's no such thing as a silver bullet. There's only a thousand lead bullets. Um, and I would, I would uh, append uh, a, another phrase on there, which is, and your success is determined by how quickly you fire them. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I anyways, I, I'm, I'm going down a, a rabbit hole. Here, that, but, ring, that rings very true to me because I'm an old New York City detective. So the faster you can fire the bullets, the safer you are. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, what, it, it, it's, it's never one shot, one kill in, in the startup world. Um, and so, you know, I think for, for me, when I'm, when I'm evaluating a, uh, an, an early stage company, you know, knowing that, and with that is sort of the universal truth of startups that whatever you start out doing today is not going to be the same that you're doing a year from now, then it's really about, is the team adaptable and do they already have that mindset or are they very set in their ways? Do they think that they're right and they're going to, they're going to sacrifice, um, you know, long-term success because they, they have that sort of egocentric mindset that they need to be right now? Uh, or are they, are they saying, this is an interesting problem. We have an idea about what the solution is. And we have 10 more ideas that once we sort of test the first one might, you know, add on to it and, and to get us to the right answer. If you have, if you talk to an entrepreneur and they start talking like that, then you know that you found something you really want to back. And it almost doesn't matter what the problem is, they're, they're going to be successful. And then the second one is around the, the TAM, the total addressable market, which is how big is the problem that they're solving and how many people, you know, what, how, how big could this company get? There are a lot of entrepreneurs that have an idea. They think it's really cool. They, they design this whole, you know, products around it. And then you look at it, it's like, well, if you had captured a hundred percent of the market, you'd be a $30 million a year business, um, which, you know, for 
some categories of business is a great outcome. For someone who's writing venture capital checks where you know you lose uh, you know 98% of the the money that you invest and the other 2% has to return everything else, you need big outcomes. You have to have the possibility of a big outcome or else uh, it's just not worth it. That's interesting. That's interesting you put it that way. It's absolutely correct. Yeah. So now as the CEO of Facet, right? Mm-hmm. You oversaw the concept, the ideation, the architecture, and of course the funding. Now I know you've been able to acquire some venture capital yourself. Maybe you could tell us what the search for venture capital is like and how you secure it. Yeah. So we've raised for context, we've we've raised about 62 million bucks. Um, so you know, we're we we've definitely raised a a fair amount. Um, Our primary backer is a firm called Warbird Pincus. uh, And they're based in New York as well. Big growth equity fund. They were actually a very non-obvious choice, both us for them and them for us, because they typically are like, you know, buying multi-billion dollar companies. And, um, and, you know, they, they initially invested $33 million in us in a minority investment, which was a very strange deal for them to do. But um, we, we've been very lucky with them. We were very lucky. They have deep experience in financial services. And they came to us, they actually found out about us. And um, in 2018, basically, uh, you know, essentially cold called me and said, look, we have a, uh, a, a thesis on the future of wealth management for, um, in th- their terminology, the, the mass affluent, but, you know, basically folks who uh, have somewhere between a hundred thousand and, you know, a million dollars of, of overall net worth. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they said, you know, we, we have a thesis on the future of wealth management in this space. And, um, you know, you guys are doing, we have a 60 slide deck and, you know, 58 of the 60 slides you guys are, are doing. And so, we have so much conviction around this that we're willing to be flexible in how we invest to, uh, you know, to, to be partners with you going forward. That's awesome. It was, yeah, it really was. And so I think for, for us, the big realization that I had there and, and, and I should say, so that was in 2018. So we're now three years into it. And they, uh, they also, they wrote another $25 million check last year. Um, and they've been incredible partners and they're very aligned with us in thinking about what's the kind of company that we're going to build in the long run, not, Hey, how do we sell this thing in two yeah. years and get a fast exit? It's how do we build this into the so, next reality, the next So are they operating like partners to you in terms of, of yeah. getting involved with the business? So it, it has a better outcome from their perspective and yours? Well, so they're, they have uh, they, they have a presence on our board. So they have board seats. And that's the sort of extent of their operational uh, involvement. It's more it's more the board level. Isn't that uh, unusual, though? For are them to have board seats? Capital people usually embedded in the guts of the company? It depends. It depends. And I would, I would caution any aspiring entrepreneurs listening to really understand that before you do the deal. Because yeah. there are some horror stories about... Mm uh about you know vcs who they, they call it adding value right yeah. uh but it's like you know value they, to who? Right. Yeah. what's that <laughs> adding value to whom yeah exactly exactly um so but um but yeah so i, I think there's a big lesson there that um you know number one is is find someone 
who shares your view of the world um, and where the world's going to go. Because if you have it right at that, at the highest level, if you're, if you're aligned at the highest level, then you, everything else gets a lot easier. If, if they came in and they said, look, our view is that this is going to be a great company. And then in three years, we want to sell it. And our view was, hey, we want to build this thing for the long run. Everything else, would, like it, it, it would never, it, every decision would be made in different contexts and it'd be, it'd be a nightmare. Um, yeah. And then the second point I would make is just like, do, do the diligence on the potential investors and understand how they act and how they behave. You alluded to that just now, but there are a lot of horror stories there. And the nice thing about the world that we live in today is that there's more money than there are opportunities to invest it. So um, it's actually a great time to be an entrepreneur. There's $2 trillion of dry powder that's been committed to venture capital funds that hasn't been invested yet. And the only way those VCs get paid is that if that money gets invested. So it's a, it, you know, part of it, we're seeing crazy valuations, crazy deal activity. Um, but there's a lot of good companies that are getting funded and getting a lot of money to really run. And it's cool to see. Excellent. So listen, they're telling me in my other ear that we need to take a commercial break. So let the sponsors have their say. So if you give me a minute, we'll take, we'll be right back with Anders Jones of CEO of uh, Facet Wealth. So stand by, we'll be right back. The Ask a CEO show is brought to you by Lorraine Gregory Communications, a full service award-winning agency where experience matters. Visit them at LorraineGregory.com. And we're back with Anders Jones, an investor, a serial entrepreneur, and the CEO of Facet Wealth. Anders, you guys are providing financial advice and content to a public in terms of helping them develop a better understanding of their personal financial well-being, right? And the management of their money. But you're not focused on the top tier. You're focused on more of a middle ground. How did you come up with that concept? Is that is that TAM or is it just where your heart is? So it's it, it's all of the above. So let me tell you a, a story. Um, and this was actually the thing that led to the creation of Facet. Um, so in, in 2015, the Department of Labor uh, under the Obama administration tried to pass a rule called the fiduciary rule. And uh, it was also known sometimes as the, the best interests rule. And it basically said this, that if you're a financial advisor, you're now legally obligated to work in the best interests or act in the best interests of your client. For a little crazy that that rule didn't exist to begin with, but you know, there we were. The crazier thing is that that rule didn't pass. Uh, the pushback from the industry was so strong that it actually, it failed. And the, um, the, the pushback, the, the feedback the industry had was, if you pass this rule, you're going to have 8 million households who lose their advisor relationship because the advisor can't afford to both service them and act in their best interest at the same time. So in my mind, that's the industry very publicly admitting that they're screwing 8 million clients uh, that have opted in and said, hey, we need financial help. We need financial advice. We need financial planning. And, and the industry said, yeah, sure. Let me sell you an annuity at a 7% commission or you know, whatever it is. Um, and so that was when a big light bulb went off and said, wow, there is a huge uh, systemic problem here, a structural problem in the industry, which is um, the cost to service 
uh, a lot of clients is, is too high. It works if you have 10 million bucks. It doesn't work if you have 200,000 bucks. Mm -hmm. And so as it turns out, there's about 38 million households that kind of fall into our sweet spot. And these are folks who have um, more nuance and complexity in their financial lives than what a purely digital solution or like a DIY website can help mm -hmm. with, but they don't have the asset level to be interesting or attractive to a traditional advisor. So it's a huge market opportunity. It's a huge need. And that's really why we exist. I would say that that's a huge need because those people, though I don't want to say those people like I'm above that, but people who have less on the financial side need more protection. Yeah. Because on their own devices, they're going to park that money someplace that they have no idea what's going on. So your company, Facet Wealth, offers the alternative to that. Am I correct? It, it, it does. And let me also go a step beyond, which is that managing money is only a tiny part of what we do. I think in the, the way that pe most people think about working with a financial advisor or wealth manager is this is someone who's going to manage my money. We think about financial planning as a totally different thing, which is how do we integrate into your everyday life to help you with your financial choices to help you live a better life. Um, you know, we view, and forgive the pun, but you know, we view that your financial life impacts every facet of your life, everything that money touches. Think about the decisions you make on a daily basis. You're not thinking about, oh, is my 401k properly allocated? But you are thinking about, okay, how much money did I spend this week? Uh, what's, what am I saving up for to, to you know, where, where am I going on vacation this summer? And am I saving enough money for it? That sort of thing. There's, there's cash flow, there's debt, there's uh, saving for your kid's college, there's thinking about starting a family, there's, um, you know, all these different things that actually have very little to do with how much money you have in the market, but more about how are you behaving around money and how are you, you know, you making the right decisions. And most of all, are you, do you feel secure in the financial choices that you're making? So you're taking a holistic approach yep. to educating a section of the market that needs it the most. Yeah. Am I correct? Yeah. You're, you're teaching them how to be a, about money and make wise decisions in terms of their money so that they can wind up with some. Yeah. It's educating and it's also, it's doing the work for them. Um, and, and it's, and the idea is that you can live a better life today. Like you don't have to sacrifice in the short term for long-term happiness. That's the, that's the whole thing that they're like, both can be true, but you can be responsible in the long term. And you can live a better life today. And, you, you know, call, call me crazy, but we talk about financial health is as important as physical health. And that access to high quality financial advice, we think is as essential of a service as access to healthcare. Well, having been on both sides of that equation, I do remember when I had 32 cents in my pocket and was to buy a pack of cigarettes or put a gallon of gas in a car to get to work. So the difference is night and day. And and like you said, people need to know how to get out of that so that they can have a better life. And it's a wonderful thing that you're doing, quite frankly. I mean, I know if I was a little younger and, and probably back in those days, the 32 cent days, I'd be knocking at your door and say, how the hell do I do this? Yeah, it's a huge need. I mean, you know, we, we can go down uh, we, we, we can go down on the rabbit hole here, but I mean, just, you know, financial literacy in general is not in a great place. Which brings of. me up to one other thing. You know, lately we've had investors 
what do you want to call them? Crowd investors, right? With yeah. that GameStop, Robinhood hedge fund flare up. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you could point out why that was such a disaster for some people. Yeah. So I've, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I mean, I, I think um, there are a lot of weird things that were happening all at once, right? You had COVID, you had people sitting in their basements, you had Robinhood, uh, you had stimulus checks hitting, and you had this this sort of like, you know, meme culture on the internet. It was all sort of happening all at once. And that's where you had these, you know, th this flare up with GameStop. It's happening again in the crypto world right now, like this week and last week. Um, but here's my, my general take on it, which I think is important and actually has bigger implications is that a lot of the things that people charged money for in the past, uh, like access to really good financial analysis of stocks and, and you know, other, um, other securities is now basically that, that competitive edge or that moat is disappearing with the internet. Um, I would argue that there's actually probably better analysis about, for instance, Tesla stock online on Twitter and Reddit uh, by retail individual investors who just are obsessed with this um, then there is, uh, that's being produced by, you know, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley or, or whoever else. Really? And so I think this idea that information access to information is changing and the traditional friction that existed in, um, you know, with, with this idea that you have a, a stockbroker who's got the hot tip, um, you know, and, and that you had to go through that person who had the information that doesn't exist anymore. And so you're starting to see these big shifts in the market. And I think it's really, really interesting how it's going to shake out. There are going to be blips and problems like we had with GameStop and, you know, with we have with some of these, these cryptocurrencies. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but it's really interesting to see kind of the, you know, a lot of the old power structures are essentially disintegrating in front of our eyes. Yeah, disruption is everywhere, right? It really is, yeah. Disruption is everywhere. So listen, so you built this great company. Tell us about the human side of it. How did you go about onboarding the people with the skill sets that you really needed? Was that a difficult process or, or did you have to do some due diligence before you ever moved to Baltimore and knew what you were looking at? Um, so I, I moved to Baltimore with the bet, and this is sort of the original Baltimore bet was that we could recruit the founding team here. And basically, you know, at the time we needed a technical person that I don't write software. Uh, and a financial planner, because I'm not a financial planner. So if we're going to offer this service, then we exactly. better have an expert. We should have one. <laughs> yeah. And so we found, we found both here and we ended up launching with a five person founding team. And, um, and then, you know, as you go along, it's interesting as, as you go along uh, and you start seeing success or you start seeing different opportunities, you sort of be like, Oh, wait a second. I need a person who understands, um, you know, how to build a really sophisticated financial model, because now we're spending a lot of money, we're getting a bunch of different, you know, a bunch of customers coming in. And, you know, we've got to kind of reconcile all this. So, you know, okay, time for a CFO or, a, you know, a finance person. And then you say, okay, um, you know, we're, we, we see this opportunity to, you know, help people specifically with cash flow. Uh, we need to come up with a different way of thinking about it. All right, we need a really good consumer product person who can design a great experience for cash flow analysis that doesn't exist today and you know so on and so forth. So 
a lot of the company, the initial team building as you're building the company is reactive and you're looking for, um, you know, you're, you're, you, you sort of stumble upon a, a problem or an opportunity and, and you've got to go find someone who can address that now. What's interesting where we are today, and, and I would say, you know, we've kind of uh, flipped from that initial product market fit phase to now the scaling phase. Um, you know, we now have the ability to be a lot more proactive. So we're sitting down and saying, okay, we have a pretty good sense of where this company is going to be in 12 months, but let's say, okay, you know, we're at 8,000 customers today. We'll be at, you know, 40,000 in 12 months. Um, what does that look like from a team standpoint? Okay. So, you know, right now we have 90 financial advisors, CFPs who work for us. We're going to be at, uh, you know, 200 what, you know, okay. So what does that support structure look like and all that? And then do we have the talent today to manage that bigger team or do we need to go find someone? And so you start getting much more proactive, which it, it, it's a total mindset shift. And it's taken me, it took me about three months to really wrap my head around it. That's not um, a long, that's not a long time. Believe me. So, it, it, in startup years, it's like 10 years. So you're not only scaling the business, you're scaling the people that 100%. you need to bring on. You yeah. need to go for the higher and higher and higher level as your company scales. You need people with more professional skills. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting thing. So like one of the, one of our core values when we started the company was we want to build the best team we possibly can. Like we want a team of absolute A players. So we hired a lot of young people who had sort of raw talent, great energy, really gung ho to, to change this industry um, and, and, you know, by and large that's paid off, but then we've promoted from within. So someone who was a great individual contributor is now a manager for the first time in their life. And, you know, I woke up earlier this year and realized, man, 75% of our managers, it's the first time that they're, they're managers. Um, and by the way, this is my first time as a CEO. So like, you know, 75% of the company, including the, the head of the company, we're waking up every day in the biggest job of our lives. Um, and we hadn't done a great job of really training and providing that structure around us sort of like, okay, well, you know, we figured it out as we went along up until now, so we can keep doing it, but you get to a point where that doesn't work anymore. And so a uh, big thing for us this year has been really thinking about how do we invest in growing our team? And also we're at a, st a stage now where we can bring in outsiders who have done this before. So, you know, you get someone who's seen it before and done it before, and you get that level of experience. And then you've got these really talented people who haven't done it before and you put them together and just amazing things start happening. It's so it's so interesting because, you know, over the years I've worked with an awful lot of nonprofits, which you would think wouldn't be analogous, right? However, <clears throat> I would always go into a nonprofit and find somebody who's been there for 20 something years and mm -hmm. now is a director and doesn't have a clue because they were just there and they kept putting them in higher, more and more responsible places. And it's hard to say to some lady who devoted her life to a nonprofit, you don't fit anymore. That's tough. It's tough to do. Yeah. So, you know, how do you got you got somebody who moved up to manager and you know they're not going to make it to the vice president level or the director level, right? So it's a difficult realization to get the right people in the right seats on the bus. And it's, that's the hard part of being a CEO, I think. It really is. It's, it's, the, it's the love and the heart of it. And, um, you know, some of my proudest accomplishments are the people that I've really mentored and seen 
grow. And some of the hardest moments have been telling people that, you know, have worked really hard for the company. Hey, you know what? You kind of tapped out and the company's moved, moved past you. Yeah. Um, it's, it's tough. It is tough. My brother used to be a, a corporate VP at paint defunct Payne Weber and he had ran about 600 people. And he said that was the worst part of his job. Yeah. He's doing that because everybody worked so hard for him. To, to hit the numbers, to make everything work. And, and when he had to say, you know what? He said he, he dreaded it. He absolutely dreaded it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. One of the benefits of being in a startup is that you're, you're on a certain trajectory where, you know, every three to six months, you're, the world changes a little bit. Um, and so, you know, the skill sets change, the, mm-hmm. you know, the needs change, that sort of thing. And so one of the things that we started doing um, is when we bring someone on, we say, look, this is the job as it exists today. This is what we think it's going to be 12 months from now. We hired you because we know you can do the job today and we are pretty sure you can do it in 12 months. 24 months, who knows? And you know, we're going to ask you to do the best work of your career when you come to work for us. Um, and our commitment back to you, we, we view it as a two-way contract, our commitment back to you is that we will do everything we possibly can to get you to the point where you, you will be able to do the job in 24 months. We will grow you as an individual uh, and as a, a manager, as a leader to, to be able to do the bigger job. And if we ever get to a point where it looks like that's not going to work, we will tell you right away and we will help you find another job. So it's like we, it, when you set that expectation, expectation ahead of time and say, look, we're, we are behind you hundred percent. Even if it doesn't work, we're still going to, we're not going to, we're not going to throw you under the bus. It, it creates, we're going to buy a, a ticket on the bus. Yeah. 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 It just, it creates a, 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 a different mentality with our employees and it's, it's, it's been really powerful. It's a weird conversation to have once on someone's first day, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's, uh, it, it, it works. Again, I'm going to go back to my brother. He said, when you interview somebody, you have to tell them, listen, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I would not do. Yeah. I'm not so sure what that might be, but be open to it. If yeah. You're not open to it. Okay. See you later. Anyhow, so listen, growing your company has got to be super exciting, but the challenges that you face every day, how do you go about handling those challenges that come at you from every different direction every single day without getting burnt out? Uh, that's a good question. Um, and, you know, my, my answer has evolved, uh, has, has evolved a bit over time. Um, you know, when you're, when you're first starting, you don't really have a choice because, the, you know, either you fix it or the company dies. And then you get to a point where, and, and I think we're, you know, knock on wood at this point where there's not a whole lot that, that's like an existential threat to us. So it's really just a question of like, you know, how, how big can you get and how fast can you, mm. can you get there? Um, and so, and then you have to really kind of start pacing yourself. Okay. We're, you know, we're in the marathon phase now. And, uh, and, and I think it's important to recognize that um, a couple of things for me. So one is, uh, you know, we have an unlimited vacation policy. So basically you can take as much as you want, as long as your work gets done. And we, you know, it's, it's a way of saying to our employees, Hey, we trust you. Um, the interesting thing about that is that no one ever takes vacation and that, and I actually think that's a bad thing. Um, and so we're now starting to mandate, uh, we're, we're going to start to mandate, you have to take at least two weeks. Um, 
and so I'm, I'm going to start taking two weeks myself and actually like force myself to unplug and not, and not respond to emails and that sort of thing, which good I haven't done yet. Luck. Good luck with that. Yeah. I think it's spoken like a CEO, you know, how it, goes. it doesn't, it's hard to do. Um, but you know, the other thing too is, is on a weekly basis, I schedule uh, empty time into my calendar. Cause I think uh, for me, burnout, a lot of burnout is when you're doing, 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 putting your head down and you don't take time to step back and think strategically you don't have a great sense of where you're going and then you go down the wrong path and then it's like everything falls apart and then it's like oh man we got to start all over again and so having this ability to kind of zoom in and zoom out on a frequent basis and think about detail stuff but then think about big picture stuff um i think that that's incredibly useful um and so uh so so for me, you know, I schedule every Wednesday morning and all day Friday, I don't schedule any meetings. And I sometimes like on Wednesday mornings, I usually just sit in my chair with a cup of coffee and a notepad and just see what comes to me. And it's amazing how sometimes ideas get connected in your head that in the moment didn't occur to you. But, you know, when you have time, right. it works. Well, the pad is handy to have because half the time they're going to go in this year. And by the time you get to your office, it's already gone. So listen, so you're going to take a, there you go. Yeah. You're going to take a vacation. So what is that, I mean, in theory, what is, yeah. What does rest, relaxation and recreation look like to you? Um, so I, uh, I spend uh, a lot of time um, uh, with, with, with my pets. Um, I have uh, a couple of dogs and uh, I actually have a horse, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just love horses. There's something about them that's so, so. I had, I had three. I used, really? to, I used to live up in the Adirondacks and I had, the first thing I did was build a barn. Yeah. And I actually had three horses. I loved them to death. There's something about it that's just so, uh, I don't know. There, there's, what's the, the Winston Churchill quote, right? There's something about the outside of a horse that's good for the inside of a man. Um, exactly correct. So, you know, so I spent a lot of time uh, you know, with, with, with them. Um, and then, uh, I, you know, I love to read, I, I block out every Sunday morning to, you know, to, to read and, um, and, you know, that goes back to the early comment about, uh, always learning, right. Yeah. And that's, that's always, um, it's always interesting. So, right. um, yeah. Yeah. So listen, so the audience that we have, we've made up of CEOs and people on their journey to this corner office. So in closing, I always ask the guests the same question. And you can answer it personally, business-wise, or a combination of both, right? What's the best piece of advice you ever got? Um, this is a, it's a, a pithy one, but it's uh, always trust your gut when it's negative, never trust it when it's positive. <laughs> I love it. I yeah. love, that's a really good one. I love uh, it. I'm going to steal that. Please do. It works in, in every situation you can think of. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Very good. Anders, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. I know I've taken up an awful lot of your time. No, the I, conversation I was, was going well. I usually try to keep it in a half an hour, but we're well beyond that because we are having such a good time. So listen, so I'm going to give you the floor. It's your time. Tell people how to get a hold of you, how to interact with Facet Wealth, and you got the time. Yeah, no, thank you. So 
uh, it's great to great to be on. Um, if you're interested in learning more about Facet uh, as a customer or as a um, as a potential employee, we're hiring like crazy right now. Uh, facetwealth.com. You can schedule an intro call uh, with one of our client success managers if you're interested in becoming a client. And then there's a whole uh, team and jobs page if you're interested in coming to work for us. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Anders Jones. Uh, I don't really tweet much, but uh, I'm on there. Um, and yeah, happy to happy to uh, answer any questions that may come up. Terrific. Anders, thank you so much. Well, everybody, that's a wrap. <clears throat> so don't miss any of our upcoming Ask a CEO interviews. We have a great guest lined up uh, from all kinds of industries all over the world. <clears throat> the video interviews are available on YouTube at Greg's Corner Office and as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, and all the streaming services. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, share, and like far and wide, and we'll see you next time. That's a wrap on another Ask a CEO interview. We hope you enjoyed the talk. We'd love to hear from you. Visit gregscorneroffice.com, click the Ask a CEO tab, search your favorite listening app, or view on YouTube. Click the subscribe button, and don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook. Until next time, goodbye from Ask a CEO.